0: Well, I'd like to welcome you all to this um, Eva colonial Memorial Lecture. We're absolutely thrilled that um, Vikram Seth is going to give this year's lecture. And I'd invite um, Professor Dawn Ferns, Professor of Gender Studies at LSE, to um, say something, a few words, about the Ever-Colonial Memorial Trust, which arranges these lectures. Thank
1: Um, Prior to joining the LSE, I taught at City of London Polytechnic, which is now London Metropolitan University, where I had the great pleasure and privilege to work alongside Ava Colourney. Ava was an economist whose work and passion were concerned with analysing and redressing inequality. After her untimely death in 1985, Amartya Sen established a trust to commemorate his late wife's work and life, and to reflect and further her belief in the possibility of social justice. The principal activity of the Trust has been to award annual bursaries to economic students at City Poly, now London Metropolitan University, who are experiencing specific hardships in order to enable them to complete their studies. The Trust also organises biennial lectures linked to Ava's interests. The first five were published as a book called Living as Equals and included an essay by Amartya on social commitment and democracy. We probably have intentions to publish subsequent lectures uh, from this series. The Trust is managed by former colleagues from City Poly, friends and family, including Ava's two children. Indrani and Kabir, and it's chaired by Chris Elvin, uh, who's played a prominent role in organizing tonight's lecture. Um, Donations to the Trust are very welcome, and the Trust now has a website, the details of which um, I hoped might be available on the screen, Uh, but we have a website. um, I believe it's um, avacolornitrust.org, if anyone feels so inclined. On that note, on behalf of the Trust, I'd like to thank the LSE for hosting this lecture and to hand over to Amartya, uh, who will introduce tonight's speaker, Vikram Seth, who we're delighted to have as part of the Ava Kalorny Memorial Lecture Series. Thank you.
0: I will not actually introduce Vikram um, because uh, you're all here because you know who he is. Uh, we're all very, very happy he's here. It's not often that we have a um, a marvelous poet, a, a great uh, novelist, a fantastic writer of non fiction as well as fiction, and a really, uh, absolutely wonderful human being, if I may say. We've been privileged to know. Um, and we're uh, terribly pleased and very happy that he's here and we're extremely grateful. I'd like to ask him to come to speak with. Then after his speech, and uh, he's always unpredictable, uh, so we don't know how long the speech is going to be. It could be long or short, but whatever time remains will be absorbed by Q&A. And I think he he said that he assured me that he can handle the Q&A. So I will sit over there because I want to hear him properly. Um, Only if matters get very unruly, I might come up and try to establish some discipline. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, I might invite you all to enjoy Wickham's presentation. And Thank you very much for coming here.
2: Uh, a very nice bottle of red has been placed in front of me <laughs> to encourage, I don't know whether it's to encourage unruliness or to help avoid it. Thank you very much, Amartya, and uh, thank you to the LSE and to the Trust for, for giving me this uh, opportunity to speak on, on on a subject very dear to my heart. Um, I, I I usually uh, get quite nervous uh, public uh, you know public speaking. I find it it helps not just have to stand at a lectern but to have a table or in this case a couple of tables on which to spread my books and papers um, and. I find also the advice of, I can't remember, I think it was Gussie Finknottle uh, of P.G. Woodhouse fame who said, it it always helps to imagine that the entire audience, none of the audience is wearing socks. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't work very well with me. What I like to do is perhaps imagine myself in a drawing room uh, with my friends well planted in front uh, and, um, well, as I say, uh, a a glass of something uh, more than drinkable in front of me. And actually it's very appropriate that uh, I should be pouring a glass of wine because both with regard to poetry and with with regard to friendship, um, uh, this is the the red liquid that that, that matters. Now if I (laughs) were giving a lecture on war and peace, I suppose I should uh, be more sanguine in my tastes, but not today and not now. It says lubricate, so it's. That's <laughs> well, as we know, this is um, a liquid both uh, well important for the Persians uh, in their poetry, certainly for the Chinese in theirs, and for the Greeks in theirs. And I think um, it's uh, I- entirely appropriate that when one talks of friends, as you'll hear later in the talk, Um, The pleasures of food and drink, uh, of convivial company, of uh, conversing uh, unfettered with each other is very important in almost every uh, tradition of of poetry. And I see, um, not not far from me, some friends who have actually helped me in the writing of my poetry. I won't name them for fear of embarrassing them, but in in The Golden Gate I uh, acknowledge them in verse and uh, uh, thank them. Uh, for Friendship, Refuge, Ears, and Views, and their surname rhymes with views. Um, The lecture is dedicated to uh, Eva Coloni, who among her many, many uh, talents had a particular gift for friendship, and in a sense I would like to dedicate this this lecture to two friends of mine who uh, are also, I think, known to you, Amartya. And, 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 and may well be friends of yours, I know that you 're friends of re- relatives of theirs. The first is is is, is Kumar, uh, Begum fr Khan who um, actually i can 't embarrass these two people by naming them because they 're both dead um, and um, and they won't they will forgive me uh, uh, She was a friend and a neighbor of mine uh, in London and she died in lahore is it a year ago two years ago um, and that was, it was to visit her, really, uh, when she was ill, uh, I think on two occasions. I went to Pakistan, which was where my father had been born in undivided India. And I was very glad both to see the country and also, of course, to see Khmer. Um, she was a person who was utterly good without being in the least boring, if you can imagine that. Um, uh, she was my home away from hers and Chini's, through whom uh, her daughter Chini Nasreen Rama. Uh, through whom I got to know both the generation above and her daughters and the generation below. But I'll come to this question of friendship and disparity in age a bit later. Um, Kamar was a, a wonderful, wonderful cook and what is very interesting is that she was very exacting about her cooking. If she didn't like it, she told you so, and if she liked it, she insisted that it was very good and that you had to try some. And this is something that I've tried to take to heart. In other words, one should be critical uh, of oneself, but not be so critical that you kind of undermine your own self-confidence. And if you do do something that is good, you should at least extend to yourself the consideration that you extend to other people. In other words, in this kind of uh, um, sort of not exactly being a friend to yourself, that sounds too much like uh, sort of modern uh, psychobabble. But at any rate, <laughs> one, should, one should not be too unkind. Um, uh, the, the, what I'm wearing today, the bandi that I'm wearing, was something that she gave me. And um, when it came to me, it came without buttonholes. It came with buttons, but without buttonholes. <laughs> now, of course, the fact is, when I complained, she said, but you never actually button it up. You're not supposed to button up the Bundy. I said, nevertheless. And I sent it back and it went back to Pakistan, buttonholes were made, and it came to me. <laughs> so it shows that you don't really have to... I have a, pretty that, that a poor dress sense. Is no bar to being particular. (laughs) So, um, one sip for Kamar. And now to Sid. Now, Sid, um, Siddhartha Maitra, who died, uh, he was a a wonderful uh, aviator and a great um, uh, flyer, and he, he died in a plane crash. Um, young very young and uh, it was for him that I first wrote many years ago uh, an earlier version of this talk which in fact I've only given there and many years later here and once for another friend in India uh, um, in again an altered version but uh, just a few words about 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 Sid he had no time for poetry at all so presumably had he been alive he would have vetoed the subject But uh, he wasn't. He was a rationalist. Indeed, he was almost irrational in his belief in rationality. And despite his huge and uh, obsessive enthusiasms, as I said, for flying, uh, for climbing in the Himalayas, for the films of Satyajit Ray, for photography and much else, and despite his enormous openness and energy and uh, and generosity, he seemed to believe not merely that, uh, uh, that rationality was the sole cure to the ills brought upon the world by human passion and fanaticism and folly, but indeed that rationality was the only take on the world. Poetry, with its appeal which seemed to depend upon rhyme and meter and intensity and uh, suggestive association, was not for him. Despite being Bengali, he was not a great enthusiast for the poems and songs of Rabindranath Tagore, of which he made irreverent fun. Especially because he saw they were objects of exaggerated veneration by his fellow Bengalis. In fact, the only book of poetry that he really liked was a book called Abol Tabol, a book of nonsense poetry, also in Bengali. In fact, by Shukumar Rai, the father of Sathya Jit Rai. And I suspect that the reason why he liked it was because of the uh, deliciously um, uh, crazy logic that lies at the heart of all the most effective nonsense poetry. Well, literature in general was all very well, and I told you about friends who, who who encouraged me to write my first novel in verse, The Golden Gate. But he did not want, Sid did not want his friends to go about jeopardizing their fortunes by dabbling in it. I was working on my PhD in economics at Stanford when the idea for my first novel, The Golden Gate, came to me. And my anxious parents were not uh, filled with uh, delight at the thought of... Uh, my taking time out from my studies. They saw, you see, uh, there would be the studies, there would be the job, there would be a, the pension, and all would be well. And Sid was genuinely concerned about me in a sort of elderly, elder brotherly sort of way. And what perhaps made the whole enterprise more self-indulgent in his eyes was that the whole novel was in verse. Why not, he suggested, complete my PhD, which was anyway long overdue, and then follow my hobby. That I eluded his advice was not so much uh, his lack of persuasiveness or my strength of will, uh, but the fact that I was in the grip of an obsession. I couldn't have stopped even if I wanted to. In the event, I finished the novel, I ran out of money, uh, I got a job. By some miracle, I found a publisher, got enough money to return myself and my books to, to Delhi, and left for home without getting my doctorate. I pointed out to Sid that I had spent 11 years at Stanford not getting a PhD, (laughs) which had to be an achievement in itself. I also made an argument, beloved to economists, of sunk costs being sunk costs, (laughs) but it is probably neither fair nor effective to use quasi-rational arguments with hyper-rationalists. Well, I thought, by way of segue, uh, talking of rationalism, uh, that I would begin my discussion of friendship by quoting from another rationalist, but this time someone who, unlike Sid, was both rationalist and poet, Dr. Samuel Johnson. It's very appropriate that I should be talking about Dr. Johnson here at the LSE, because he was a fervent Londoner, and just five, he lives within walking distance of this building, uh, and he made that famous comment about when a man is tired of London, etc., he's tired of life, He was a scholar, so that follows the letter S. And then he made some very interesting comments about economics, which I took down from the internet today, but which I don't have time for. But here is the beginning of his poem on friendship, his Ode on Friendship, one of his earliest poetical works, which begins thus. Friendship, peculiar boon of heaven, the noble mind's delight and pride, to men and angels only given. To all the lower world denied, while love, a stranger to the blessed, parent of thousand wild desires, the human and the savage breast inflames alike, with raging fires. Well, Johnson was someone who was a natural solitary and, in many ways, a depressive, and even had the reputation of being quite quite misanthropic. But he struggled all his life with the question of how to relate to people to other people, somewhat against his own uh, natural bent. He recognized the importance of love, of friendship, of uh, professional association, despite the energy that they absorbed, the distraction from work that they implied, and the, um, the vicissitudes that were, uh, were inherent in them. He was married briefly to an older woman, and he famously said that marriage, marriage has many pains, but celibacy has no pleasures. Uh, and one of his—the problem with Johnson is that the moment you quote something, you have to remain silent for a minute, so that not only do, do, does people have to settle down, but they can absorb it because it's quite a complex uh, formulation. Almost all his witticisms, uh, unlike those of Wilde, one really has to think quite hard about. It. Um, so he was married. I told you about that. Um, one of his most delightful poems is addressed to a young man who has just achieved majority, and one of his most moving poems talks of the death of an old friend at the age of 77 which again touches upon the point I made earlier about the range of age but perhaps the relationship of his that is most well known uh, uh, to us is his long association with his biographer Boswell this was not exactly a relationship between equals but it was nevertheless a sort of friendship and this brings us to two quite interesting points questions first does an association need to be of long-standing before it can truly be termed a friendship? And secondly, does it have to be an association of equals? Now Socrates said, and I'm sure several hundred sages have said since then, much the same thing, and it's not a particularly starting piece, startling piece of advice, be slow to fall into friendship, but when you're in it, continue firm and constant. And. George Washington in a letter wrote, True friendship is a plant of slow growth and must undergo and withstand the shocks of adversity before it is entitled to the appellation. But I'm sure, despite these, uh, these uh, 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 remarks, I'm sure that we all, or almost all of us, experience at some time friendship with someone we've never met before. Well, unlike love, you can't really fall into friendship across a crowded room. Uh, you've at least got to talk to the person. Uh, but, but still, it is um, the case that the rapport is sometimes so, um, so swift, so immediate, and so delightful that you can count the person immediately as a friend. And one such uh, recipient of fast-track elevation uh, was the woman to whom the, the uh, 19th century uh, Anglican clergyman and wit, Sidney Smith, addressed the following remark over dinner. Madam, I have been looking for a person who disliked gravy all my life. <laughs> Let us swear eternal friendship. <laughs> now, whether gravy or model frames or cricket scores or the songs of Sagal or politics or conservation, away with words or a sympathetic demeanor or whatever, something shared arcs between the two points and a friendship is born. Nor is the new friend on probation. It isn't as if he or she is first an assistant friend, uh, then an associate, <laughs> associate friend, and finally, you know, after seven years given tenure, and perhaps <laughs> raised to the status of a full or even an endow- endowed friend. Uh, at least in this context, or at least in this, in this audience, I'm allowed to say that, uh, extend the analogy, and say there's no such thing as an emeritus friend. <laughs> I suppose I would say, unlike Washington, that there are new and old friends that it's more a question of um, of um, Beaujolais versus Bordeaux or something. Uh, both are enjoyable, although it's certainly true that, uh, that age has something to do uh, with the matter uh, and that one might be more complex than the other. The other uh, Boswell and Johnson question is that of, of, of equality. Now here again one can find worthy but dubious quotations Uh, from uh, uh, the luminaries of the past Uh, here is one such Uh, there is little friendship in the world and least of all between equals now this comes from the great scientist and essayist Francis Bacon but one wonders with what authority he spoke he himself was, was a pretty rotten friend for all his perception and brilliance he was an ambitious man who, among other things, betrayed his patron Essex when he got into trouble for fomenting rebellion against Queen Elizabeth. Bacon's experience of uh, and, and expertise in the backbiting, back world of the Elizabethan court and Jacobean court as well obviously colored and informed his views of friendship and, and equality. Well, how important is equality? Can a patron be a friend? Dr Johnson himself wouldn't have thought so. His experience of the egregious Lord Chesterfield, among others, resulted in the following uh, uncomplimentary listing in one of his poems, The Vanity of Human Wishes, in which he writes this couplet. There mark what ills the scholar's life assail. Toil, envy, want, the patron and the jail." But Horace uh, wouldn't have agreed. Uh, He wouldn't have been as bitter about his wealthy friend uh, Gaius Mykenas, who I think provided him with the funds for the farm on which he lived and which enabled him to uh, write his poetry. But unlike Chesterfield, um, Horace's patron was not patronising. The inequalities of power, like wealth, create uncertainties, suspicions of motive, and asymmetries of bounty that are difficult for friendship to sustain. Can a ruling king uh, or a dictator have a true friend? Dr. Johnson again is sceptical. Invoking friendship as a beneficent goddess, he writes, Thy gentle flows of guiltless joys on fools and villains ne'er descend. In vain for thee the monarch sighs and hugs a flatterer for a friend. And what? To move from wealth and power, what about very busy people, or hugely famous people, or extremely good-looking people, or terrifyingly intelligent people, or or immensely tall people? (laughs) Uh, It's a a serious question. Can they only be friends with their equals in in these respects? What if there is a huge gap in age? I think there's a danger in being too restrictive. Equality is really more a question of ease and consideration of tolerance and of affection of being able to unburden oneself and of taking on by ear and by act the burdens of others. No asymmetry is a bar to it unless the parties whether justifiably or unjustifiably believe that it is. Now some relationships though not friendship as such are intrinsically or historically unequal and it is difficult to unfeel this inequality. Uh, the relationship between mother and newborn baby, um, <laughs> between God and human, let's say, or the gods and humans, um, though I said between parents and children is very difficult, between siblings perhaps that's not the case, between people and pets, all these are difficult to square with friendship. And indeed, why would one want to? These relationships are their own depth their own quality, their own significance, their own charm. Perhaps, as in Bhakti or Sufi poetry in the Indian or Persian traditions, one may address God as a friend or a lover, but friendship is a bilateral relationship, and it's doubtful if God would take the same view of the worshipper as the worshipper takes of God. Well, what about friendship's great rival, or rivals, or perhaps double-headed rival? romantic love and sexual passion, which Dr Johnson contrasted in that poem that I read to the detriment of love. Well this is a huge subject and it's impossible to get into it now. The Greeks would very likely have agreed with Dr Johnson, for them Aphrodite was often viewed as a dangerous and unpredictable and and treacherous uh, goddess. Sexual passion was primarily destructive with very little to do with romantic or even generative power. And later Byron called friendship love without wings, but omitted to mention that it it is its wings that could lead to a crash, especially if you fly too close to the sun. Um, Elation and dismay, uh, sexual ecstasy and bitter alienation, the sense of being uniquely treasured and the jealous agonies that come when this exclusivity is threatened. What do all these have to do with the less volatile comforts of friendship? One can, perhaps, live without romantic love, but can one live without friendship? The one need might last a few decades, but the other is with us from the age of two to 102 or beyond. I speak as one who is you know, currently unattached, so perhaps I'm giving love a, a rough ride and not a fair share. But even uh, long, long-standing marriages and other long-standing relationships that have begun romantically, uh, do they decline into friendship or do they advance into it? The whole tradition of love poetry between men and women is outside the scope of uh, today's uh, talk, despite the fact that it may overlap with or contrast with the poetry of friendship, and despite the fact that the word friend is quite often used as a staple of this other genre. And again, today, and for the same reason, where one man is writing to another, or one woman to another, and the feeling expressed is primarily uh, or, or largely romantic or sexual, I've left such poems untouched. They include some of the most wonderful and memorable poems in literature, works by Shakespeare or Byron or Mir or Rumi or Sappho or Platon, just to take a few examples. And they're well worth exploring, but, but sadly not here, not here and not today. Now, all this is on the plane of abstraction, and I'm not in the business of writing an essay on friendship uh, along the lines of Montaigne or, 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 or Emerson but rather to address the relationship between friendship and poetry. But to make things less abstract and as a sort of slideshow, I've chosen a number of poems which I'll read to illustrate various points, and for the sake of variety and interest, I've taken them from two very different linguistic traditions. I've also excluded poetry uh, from plays, or poet- verse uh, plays that are written in verse, uh, because friendships depicted there emerge from plot and characterization rather than from direct address and invocation. So there's nothing, for example, from Kali Das or Shudraka uh, on the one hand or from Shakespeare's plays, for example, uh, wonderful depictions of true friendship, though they involve, and also friendship of a different nature, such as is exemplified by, uh, you know, Barbus or Hal or Brutus, Or Iago. (laughs) Well, the two languages I've chosen are English and classical Chinese. Um, The translations from the the Chinese are my own and they're taken from a book called Three Chinese Poets. These are 8th century Tang Dynasty poets, Wang Wei, Li Bai, and Du Fu. Um, Wang Wei was considered a sort of Buddhist sage, Li Bai, a Taoist immortal, and Du Fu a kind of uh, Confucian, so they kind of cover the three zones of Chinese, or three of the zones of Chinese thought. Uh, this might be a simplifying, uh, uh, clarif- clar- clarifying simplification, but there is some truth in it, although they lived at the same time as each other in the 8th century, as I said. So without further prose on my poet part, I'll move to the poems themselves, I've arranged them in pairs, one English, one Chinese. Well, the first pair of poems relates to food and wine to inviting a friend for a supper uh, for a meal or talking about a meal that 's taking place um, because this is of course a staple of friendship, talking easily um, unbuttonedly over, uh, over a meal. The first uh, poem is from Uh, The Elizabethan and Jacobean poet, uh, Ben Johnson, but he was also a playwright, but as I said, I'm not talking about his plays at the moment, I'm talking about his lyric poetry, and it's called Inviting a Friend to Supper. Um, Just a couple of words need explanation. Uh, The word cakes means uh, dainties or dishes. The word coney means rabbit. Uh, The mermaid is, is, as you probably know, a tavern and Polly or Parrot were two government spies or informers. Inviting a Friend to Supper by Ben Johnson Tonight, grave sir, both my poor house and I do equally desire your company. Not that we think us worthy such a guest, but that your worth will dignify our feast with those that come, whose grace may make that seem something which else could hope for no esteem. It is the fair acceptance, sir, creates the entertainment perfect, not the cates. Yet shall you have, to rectify your palate, an olive, capers, or some a better salad, ushering the mutton, then a short-legged hen, if we can get her, full of eggs, and then lemons and wine for sauce. To these a cony is not to be despaired of for our money. And though fowl now be scarce, yet there are clerks, the sky not falling, think we may have larks. I'll tell you of more and lie so you will come, of partridge, pheasant, woodcock, of which some may yet be there, and Godwit if we can, gnat, rail, and rough too. Howsoever, my man shall read a piece of Virgil, Tacitus, Livy, or of some better book to us, of which we'll speak our minds amidst our meat. And I'll profess no verses to repeat. To this, if aught appear that I know that I not know of, That will the pastry, not my paper, show off. Digestive cheese and fruit there sure will be, But that which most doth take my muse and me Is a pure cup of rich canary wine, Which is the mermaid's now, but shall be mine, Of which had Horace or Anacreon tasted, Their lives, as do their lions, till now had lasted. Tobacco, nectar, for the Thespian spring are all but Luther's beer to this I say. Of this we will sup free but moderately, and we shall have no poley or parrot by, nor shall our cups make any guilty men, but at our parting we shall be as when we innocently met. No simple word that shall be uttered at our mirthful board shall make us sad next morning, or affright the liberty that we'll enjoy tonight. The other poem by Du Fu is, is shorter, um, uh, Chinese poems are usually of four or eight lines, um, but this is about fifteen or so, sixteen. Um, it's written to Wei Ba, who has lived away from the court. Like stars that rise when the other has set, for years we two friends have not met. How rare it is then that tonight we once more share the same lamplight. Our youth has quickly slipped away, and both of us are turning grey. Old friends have died, and with a start we hear the sad news, sick at heart. How could I, twenty years before, know that I'd be here at your door, when last I left, so long ago, you were unmarried? In a row, suddenly now your children stand, welcome their father's friend, demand to know his home, his town, his kin, till they're chased out to fetch wine in spring chives are cut in the night rain and steamed rice mixed with yellow grain to mark the occasion we should drink ten cups of wine straight off you think but even ten can't make me high so moved by your old love am i the mountains will divide our lives each to his world when day arrives the other pair of poems that i'll read Um, is touched upon slightly in Dufu's poem, and it's about the sorrow of the loss of friends, Um, the missed opportunities, the things that could have been said but weren't said, things that could have been done but were left undone. The first poem is by Dryden, John Dryden, um, 17th century. It's written to a younger man, uh, John Oldham, who was a schoolmaster uh, and a poet, a satirist in particular, to the memory Of Mr. Oldham. There are a couple of classical references, but I won't. The poem loses nothing by not having them clarified. Farewell, too little and too lately known, whom I began to think and call my own. For sure our souls were near allied, and thine cast in the same poetic mould with mine. One common note on either lyre did strike, And knaves and fools we both abhorred alike. To the same goal did both our studies drive, The last set out, the soonest did arrive. Thus, Nisus fell upon the slippery place While his young friend performed and won the race. O oh, early ripe, to thy, to thy abundance store, What could advancing age have added more? It might, what nature never gives the young, have taught the numbers of thy native tongue, but satire needs not those, and wit will shine through the harsh cadence of a rugged line, a noble error, and but seldom made, when poets are by too much force betrayed. Thy generous fruits, though gathered ere their prime, still showed a quickness, and maturing time but mellows what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. Once more, hail and farewell. Farewell, thou young, but are too short, Marcellus of our tongue. Thy brows with ivy and with laurels bound, but fate and gloomy night encompass thee around. Wang Wei, um, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, was very deeply involved in Buddhism, he was associated with the, with the imperial court for a while um his wife died when he was quite young and he retired to, to his country estate um, and took very little interest in in affairs of state uh, but got involved more in in philosophy spent uh, Time writing poetry, was a wonderful painter as well, though none of his paintings are extant, only School of Wang Wei, and also a great calligrapher. It was said of one of his works that it was uh, a triple glory of painting, calligraphy, and of poetry. Um, but paper is fragile, <coughs> unlike words themselves, which have lasted 13 centuries. Lament for Yin Yao, who was again a student, a, a much younger man than his, than, than he was. And the only thing that needs to be explained is non-rebirth, which is uh, basically Buddhism. In Chinese it's called, uh, the words it were used by Wang Wei is non-birth, uh, but I translated it as non-rebirth because that was actually what was, what was meant, liberation from the cycle of, um, of rebirth. Lament for Yin Yao. How long can one man's lifetime last? In the end, we return to formlessness. I think of you waiting to die. A thousand things cause me distress. Your kind old mother's still alive, your only daughter's only ten. In the vast chilly wilderness, I hear the sounds of weeping men. Clouds float into a great expanse, Birds fly but do not sing in flight How lonely are the travellers Even the sun shines cold and white Alas, when you still lived And asked to study non-rebirth with me My exhortations were delayed And so the end came fruitlessly All your old friends have brought you gifts But for your life these too are late I failed you in more ways than one Weeping, I walk back My gate. Now these are cases of of poems that are are on similar themes, though very different in their styles. Um, Whether it's inviting a friend to supper or lamenting the loss of a friend, and there are similar poems. For example, of of dreaming of a friend. For example, there's a wonderful poem by Edward Thomas um, uh, about Edward Thomas. Sorry, by Robert Frost, his friend. and there's another one by Du Fu about his friend Li Bai, Uh, but uh, we don't have time for those, but what I will uh, recite is a few poems by uh, Chinese poets about the sorrows of parting, which is a genre which is very rare in English, and these are two very short poems, four and six lines respectively, and thereby the third poet whom I mentioned, uh, apart from Wang Wei and Du Fu, this is the poet Li Bai. A quatrain Seeing Meng Haoran off to Yangzhou. Yellow Crane Terrace, my old friend bids me goodbye. To Yangzhou in the mists and flowers of spring he goes. His single sail's far shadow melts in the blue void. All I see is the sky to which the Yangtze flows. Parting in a wine sh- in a wine shop in Nanjing, also by Li Bai. Uh, Wu is a region in China. Breeze bearing willow cotton fills the shop with scent. A Wu girl pouring wine exhorts us to drink up. We Nanjing friends are here to see each other off. Those who must go and those who don't each drains his cup. Go ask the Yangtze which. Of these two sooner ends, Its waters flowing east, The love of parting friends. Now this kind of poem is, as I've said before, rare in English, and for that matter it's quite rare in, 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 in Indian uh, um, uh, lyric poetry as well. Parting from a friend is not the kind of thing that on the whole English or American poets wax lyrical about, but in classical Chinese poet, uh, po- uh, literature, Every third poem seems to bear a title such as In Response to Vice Magistrate Zhang <laughs> or At Qizhou Bidding Farewell to Zhu the Third or In the White Snow Sending Off Officer Wu Who Is Returning to the Capital and this is especially true of Tang poetry Tang dynasty poetry in general Chinese literature pays proportionately far far more attention to friendship and particularly to parting from friends than English literature, or indeed European literature on the pole. For the most part, I like these poems. Uh, they've got an intimacy and informality that makes a change from the intensity of the love poetry with which Western literature is so richly endowed, or some would say riddled. Um, unless the poetry in Chinese literature becomes formulary, which is actually quite often the case as well. And sometimes these poems seem to me to have a greater integrity, because a friend, unlike a lover, does not need to be wooed by exaggeration. In fact, it was poems of this sort which so moved me in translation that I decided many, many years ago to learn Chinese. I'll try to give a few tentative reasons as to why Chinese poetry in particular should be so rich in such poems. China, for most of its history, has been a huge and diverse country with very slow communications, ruled from the capital by imperial fiat, um, and this fiat was intermediated and transmitted and tempered by a civil service which was spread through the country. It was this highly literate elite, recruited largely through rigorous competitive examinations, that was both the creator of and the major audience for poetry, and the ability to compose poetry was seen as um, as an attribute as a sort of accomplishment of a scholar gentleman. It was also accepted as a kind of medium, a profound medium uh, in a climate of censorship for the expression or the indirect expression of moral or political philosophy. It was quite often difficult to express things any other way without being executed or exiled. So it is quite natural when parting from a friend to express your views of the world to some extent and to present him with a piece of poetry or a piece of calligraphy or indeed both encapsulated in one. Given the huge distances and the constant postings and repostings and as I mentioned exiles parting from a friend held the real possibility of never seeing him again. Now, if an English civil servant were to be transferred from, say, London to Leeds, uh, it would hardly evince heartache in the friend and laments about the shortness of life and the unlikelihood of reunion this side of the grave, but for a Chinese writer to be shuttled from, say, Herbei in the north uh, uh, to the mosquito-ridden uh, I- island of Hainan in the south was a much graver matter. In the first four lines of a poem to his friend and fellow poet Li Bai, Du Fu wrote, "The pain of life's, the pain of death's farewells, grows dim. The pain of life's farewells stays new. Since you were exiled to Jiangnan, plague land, I've had no news of you." Li Bai had entered the the service of a prince who was later killed by the emperor, who feared that he might usurp his throne. Li Bai was implicated in the plot, exiled to the southwest. Before he got there he was pardoned but Dufu hadn't heard of that. Uh, after getting the news of his pardon, uh, Li Bai continued his wanderings uh, for a while but before he and Dufu could meet again he died and so in a sense Dufu's premonition was not unfounded. A third possible reason for the importance of poetry among the literati and therefore the likelihood that they would use it as a means of communicating their thoughts and feelings with each other was due to the Empress Wu of the Tang Dynasty. Now this dynasty was founded uh, in I think 618 by a young man who filially installed his father on the throne uh, and then a few years later took over uh, in his own right uh, under the name of Taizong. He recruited talent, he honed the administration, he expanded China's frontiers, he founded an academy in the capital Chang'an which became the foremost seat Of learning in the world, or perhaps one of the two or three foremost seats, because at the same time in Bihar, the great seat of learning of Nalanda was also um, flourishing. And after his death, uh, Thaizung's death, and that of his somewhat incompetent son and successor, um, one of Thaizung's erstwhile concubines installed herself on the throne of China as the Empress Wu. She ruled in her own right through intrigue and force. Uh, uh, she, w- she was not a sort of dowager empress or, or regent she was she, she founded a short lived dynasty the dynasty Zhou uh, and um, she was called uh, a sacred and divine empress uh, regnant uh, and then later she, there was a palace intrigue um, after uh, um, well I won't go into it she was backed off to a nunnery and died a year later now, one of Empress Wu's innovations was the introduction of poetry as a compulsory subject in the civil, imperial civil service exams, which until then had dealt mainly with Confucian texts of philosophy and governance. Now, even before that, of course, poetry had been uh, important for uh, a scholar-gentleman, but after that, it became a kind of uh, career necessity, and the standard of poetic ability ar- arose considerably, and it's perhaps no coincidence that the next generation produced three of the greatest, I would say, the three greatest Tang dynasty poets, whom I've, whose names I've mentioned before, many of whose works were addressed to friends who would have read them without self-consciousness and with pleasure and appreciation. In fact, the very effective, affecting poem, at Chijo bidding farewell to Zhu Third is by Wang Wei and Zhu III was an, uh, a typical bureaucrat, an, office, an officer in the Bureau of Military Equipment. And another final reason uh, for the importance of this poetry is that poetry for all its intimacy was often treated as a sociable leisure activity. The greatest classic of Chinese calligraphy, the Lan Shu, the orchid pavilion preface of Wang Xizhu, uh, is a prose introduction To poems written at the gathering of increasingly drunken friends who sat along a narrow meandering stream and wine cups were floated down the stream and the person in front of whom they stopped had to write a poem after helping himself to the wine. It's a bit like a game of forfeits. Uh, Linked poetry was also associated uh, with the Chinese writing of poetry and Wang Wei and his friend Pei Di each in alternation describing various natural sites on Wang Wei's estate, wrote a series of quatrains. Um, Wang Wei, also at the age of 20, was a member of a literary gathering where the prince ordered people to write poems on the same theme, Uh, and Wang Wei's poem uh, was written first, finished first. When it was read out, everyone agreed it was pointless to try to write something better. Now on the whole, the emphasis on romantic or divine love has dominated the lyric poetry of many other traditions than the Chinese. In Europe this could have its historical roots partly in the tradition of chivalry and partly um, in the the emphasis on individualism which came uh, with the Renaissance. It isn't as if poetry was entirely disconnected from friendship, it's certainly the case that in uh, poetry conscious and poetry unself-conscious Elizabethan England, friends wrote to each other, Spencer and others, for example, wrote dedicatory acrostics to each other, or at other times, among, say, the Latin writing community of European scholars and statesmen, or later in England, uh, a so-called, when when writing Greek and Latin verse was seen as a kind of uh, uh, admirable academic accomplishment, uh, so-called public schools, we see it flourishing there. Uh, in a friendly and appreciative environment but in no tradition other than the chinese does the linkage between poetry and friendship seem to be so persistent and so strong now perhaps english poets by contrast are more reserved in their friendships or else don't want to appear to be sort of wimpy uh, by shooting off poems uh, to their friends at the slightest provocation but (laughs) there is one aspect of friendship which is far better represented in English poetry than in the Chinese, and that is the satirical, uh, cynical, or deliberately amoral view of friendship uh, as an institution of feeling deeply permeated with all sorts of uh, unpleasant impurities like envy or pride or condescension or indifference, self-interest or self-absorption or treachery. And my next three readings deal with these rather tricky undercurrents. One is by the sardonic. Uh, Jonathan Swift one is by the contemporary poet Timothy Steele in a, a, in a an acerbic mood and I myself am guilty of the third one now uh, Swift uh, envisages his death and imagines the comparative well he, it's called Verses on the Death of Dr Swift and he begins with an aspect of envy and he admits to it with regard to his own friends. In Pope, I cannot read a line, but with a sigh, I wish it mine. When he can in one couplet fix more sense than I can do in six, it gives me such a jealous fit, I cry, pox, take him and his wit. But it's not so much envy as indifference, which he describes in, um, in, in, in his friends or what he sees of his friends' reaction to his own death. The time is not remote when I must, by the course of nature, die. Uh, When I foresee my special friends will try to find their private ends, though it is hardly understood which way my death can do them good. Yet thus, methinks, I hear them speak. See how the dean begins to break. Poor gentleman, he droops apace. You plainly find it in his face. That old vertigo in his head will never leave him till he's dead. Besides, his memory decays, he recollects not what he says, he cannot call his friends to mind, forgets the place where last he dined, plies you with stories er and er, he told them fifty times before. How does he fancy we can sit to hear his out-of-fashioned wit? But he takes up with younger folks, who, for his wine, will bear his jokes. (laughs) Faith, he must make his stories shorter, or change his comrades once a quarter. He hardly drinks a pint of wine, and that, I doubt, is no good sign. His stomach, too begins to fail. Last year we thought him strong and hale, but now he's quite another thing. I wish he may hold out till spring. then hug themselves and reason thus: It is not yet so bad with us. Behold the fatal day arrive. How is the dean? He's just alive. Now the departing prayer is read. He hardly breathes, the Dean is dead. Here shift the scene to represent those how those I love my death lament. Poor Pope will grieve a month, and gay a week, and arbuth not a day. St. John himself will scarce forbear to bite his pen and drop a tear. The rest will give a shrug and cry, I'm sorry, but we all must die. I'll skip a few lines. My female friends, whose tender hearts have better learned to act their parts, receive the news in doleful dumps. The dean is dead, and what his trumps? <laughs> then, then Lord have mercy on his soul, ladies, I'll venture for the vole. Six deans they say, must bear the pall, I wa- wish I knew what king to call. Madam, your husband will attend the funeral of so good a friend. No, madam, tis a shocking sight, and he's engaged tomorrow night. My lady club will take it ill if he should fail her at quadrille. He loved the dean. I led a heart. Uh, his but dearest friends, they say, must part. His time has come, he ran his race. We hope he's in a better place. <laughs> well, from indifference to non reciprocity. This is a wonderful poet, Timothy Steele uh, and I dedicate my book The Golden Gate to him, he was a teacher to me and it was not just that he taught me some of the skills of verse but that through his own poetry I decided that it was possible to write in rhyme and meter and be completely of your times to be moving and uh, humorous and um, and clear. At least uh, those are the virtues I aspired to and which he certainly uh, attained this is called PAL by Timothy Steele when we are together you invariably ask advice and consolation I don the mask of sympathy lips pursed as you run through tales of misfiring conquests a snafu involving an irate Miss and a mrs who teaches yoga what a sad world this is so difficult so fraught with complication concluding you express appreciation so kind of you to always hear me out i need a friend a true friend well no doubt yet if i ever speak to you in kind you grow nervous tense uh, my problems just remind you of meetings that you're late for uh, so distressing your situation yes but I have this pressing engagement fair enough but you should know I've wearied of this curious quid pro quo. You talk, I listen. When I talk, you flee. (laughs) And I'm afraid, though it distresses me, I'd best forego the joys of our relations henceforth. As for your future lamentations, one listener should prove as good as another. It's not a friend you need friend, but a mother. The last is a poem about the most inexcusable of uh, impurities uh, in friendship, and that is betrayal. And this is a a, a poem I've written about, a tale that's well known in Indian literature. It's uh, taken from the Panch Tantra or also from the Jatak Tales and so on, and it's called The Crocodile and the Monkey. People tell me that they read these poems out to their children, but I find the poems singularly grisly and vicious and, I, <laughs> and amoral. And I, I wonder whether it's such a good idea to read them to six-year-olds, but I'm assured that the children relish them and, uh, and, and perhaps children have a kind of uh, tougher stomach for, for the grimness of existence than, than we rather uh, uh, sensitive adults do. On the Ganga's greenest isle lived Kuroop, the crocodile. Greeny brown with gentle grin, stubby legs and scaly skin, he would view with tepid eyes, prey below a certain size. But when a substantial dish, dolphin, turtle, fatter fish, swam across his field of view, he would test the water too. Out he'd glide, a floating log, silent as a polybog. That's a tadpole, just in case you need to, in American. Nearer, nearer till his prey swam a single length away. Then he'd lunge with smiling head, grab and snap and rip it dead. Then, prime pleasure of his life, drag the carcass to his wife. Lay it humbly at her feet, eat a bit and watch her eat. (laughs) This is from a book called Beastly Tales, and I assure you it gets worse. All along the river bank, mango trees stood rank on rank and his monkey friend would throw to him, as he swam below, mangoes gold and ripe and sweet as a special summer treat. Crocodile, your wife, I know, hungers after mangoes so that she'd pine and weep and swoon mangoless in burning june. Then Karoop, the crocodile, gazing upwards with a smile, thus addressed his monkey friend. Dearest monkey, in the end, not the fruit, but your sweet love, showered on us from above, constant through the changing years, slakes her griefs and dries her tears. This was only partly true. She liked love and mangoes too. (laughs) One day Mrs Crocodile, gorged on mangoes with a smile, sad yet tender, turned and said, Scalykins, since we've been wed, you've fulfilled my every wish. Dolphins, turtles, mangoes, fish, but I now desire to eat as an anniversary treat something sweeter still than fruit, sugar cane or sugar root. I must eat that monkey's heart. What? Well, darling, for a start, he's been so kind to me. Think how sweet his heart must be. Then the mango pulp he's eaten, year on year, must serve to sweeten further yet each pore and part, concentrating in his heart. (laughs) Darling, he's my friend. I know, and he trusts you. Therefore go, go at once and fetch him here. (laughs) Oh, my breath grows faint, I fear. Let me fan you, it's the heat. No, I long for something sweet. Every fruit tastes bitter now. I must eat his heart somehow. Get him here, my love, or I filled with bitterness, will die. When the monkey saw Kuroop, he let out a joyful hoop, jumped from branch to branch with pleasure, flinging down the golden treasure. Eat, my friend, and take your wife nectar from the tree of life. Mangoes ripe and mangoes rare, mangoes, mangoes everywhere. <laughs> then Kuroop the crocodile gazed up with a gentle smile. A monkey, you are far too kind. But today, if you don't mind, dine with both of us and meet her whose life you made so sweet. When you meet her, you will see why she means so much to me. When she takes you by the paw, something at your heart will gnaw. (laughs) When you gaze into her eyes, you will enter paradise. (laughs) Let us share our gratitude, uh, let us show our gratitude, share our friendship and our food. <laughs> dear Karoop, dear crocodile, you can swim from isle to isle, I can leap from limb to limb, but my friend, I cannot swim, and your island's far away. If I get a boat some day, nonsense, jump upon my back. You're no heavier than my sack filled with mangoes to the crown. So the monkey clambered down bearing mangoes and delighted with such warmth to be invited. They were just halfway across when the crocodile said, toss all those mangoes in the water. But these fruits are all I've brought her. You yourself are gift enough, said Karoop in accents gruff. Ah, my friend, that's very gracious. Well, my wife's not so voracious, and I'm certain that today she won't eat fruit. By the way, uh, tell me what your breast contains. Mango nectar fills your veins, does it also fill your heart?" Said the monkey with a start, what a very curious question. Well, she might get indigestion if it's too rich, I suspect. What? Your heart. My heart. Correct. Now, Karup said with a frown, which would you prefer, to drown in the Ganga or to be gutted by my wife and me? I will let you choose your end, after all, you are my friend. Then he slowly started sinking. Oh wait, the monkey said, I'm drinking, I'm thinking. A death by drowning, death by slaughter, death by land or death by water. I'd face either with a smile for your sake, O oh crocodile, but your wife's felicity. That's what means the most to me. Noble lady, how she'll freeze, numb with sorrow, when she sees, having prized my ribs apart, that my breast contains no heart. If you had not rushed me so, I'd have found the time to go to the hollow where I keep heart and liver when I sleep. (laughs) Half my brain, a fingernail, cufflinks, chutney and spare tail. (laughs) I had scarcely woken up when you asked me here to sup. Why did you not speak before? I'd have fetched them from the shore. Now, Karoop the crocodile, lost, then quickly found his smile. "'How my sweetheart will upbraid me! "'Monkey, monkey, you must aid me!' "'Well!' the monkey placed his paw thoughtfully upon his jaw. "'Well, although the day is hot, and I'd really rather not, "'we could go back, fetch my heart, check its sweetness, and depart!' (laughs) So the crocodile, once more, swam the monkey back to shore, "'and with tears of thankfulness, mingled with concern and stress, "'worried what his wife would say with regard to his delay, "'begged his friend,' Come back at once. I'm not such a double dunce, yelled the monkey from on high. Tell your scaly wife to try eating her own wicked heart if she has one for a start. Mine's been beating in my breast night and day without a rest. Tell her that. And as for you, here's my parting gift. He threw mangoes, squishy, rotten, dead, down upon the reptile's head, who, with a regretful smile, sat. And eyed him for a while.) <laughs> well, I don't mean to imply that most of all my poems are, are sort of dramatic in that regard. I, I find when I look at my novels, uh, there are a number of friendships at the heart of things friendship between Liz and Phil or John and Janet in The Golden Gate friendship between Lata and Malti or Feroz and Maan or their fathers the Nawab Sahib and Mahesh Kapoor in A Suitable Boy and that between Michael Holm and the other members of his string quartet in an equal music but when I looked at the lyric poetry I've written I found that despite all that I've said today in praise of friendship there were far more love poetry, poems than friendship poems No matter how freely I define the term. But in order to sell my conscience conscience in this regard, I have selected one short poem written many years ago when I was a student at Stanford. It's called A Style of Loving. Light Light now restricts itself to the top half of trees. The angled sun slants honey-colored rays that lessen to the ground as we bike through the corridor of Palm Drive. We too have reached a safety the years can claim to have uncreate, the years can claim to have created unconsummated, therefore unjaded, unsated. (coughs) Picnic, movie, ice cream, talk, to clear my head hot buttered rum, coffee for you and so not to bed. And so we have set the question aside gently. Were we to become lovers, where would our best friends be? You do not wish, nor I, to risk again this savoured light for noon's high joy or pain. Incidentally, the friend to whom I wrote that poem was someone who inspired the first scene in The Golden Gate, my first novel, where John meets his loyal ex-girlfriend, Janet, in a Chinese restaurant. I had written lots of poetry before, poetry aside, lyric poetry, but The Golden Gate, being both a novel and a long poem, was my stepping stone between poetry and fiction. Now, I realise that I'm much better known as a novelist than a poet, but I see myself primarily as a poet and, only, and, and as a consumer of poetry, and only incidentally as a novelist and a consumer of novels. The pleasures, the insights, the consolation, the memorability of poetry are more intense, I feel, than those of the more outgoing form. The novelist has to understand people and the world and an environment uh, and a rich and believable context. The lyric poet presents a much more limited world, but in a voice that speaks to one in certain moods when discursiveness will not do, and when one needs to believe that others have felt the way that one feels. And because poetry is much more memorable, owing to meter and rhyme and a more concentrated choice of words, we can often enjoy it without the need to lug around those irksome and often bulky physical objects, books. Prose is difficult to remember, but the incantations first created, perhaps hundreds of years ago, by strangers, possibly even by foreigners, get wired into our brains and we can draw upon them when our heart needs them. A line from Emily Dickinson may take off the edge of one's despair. Uh, a phrase from Pushkin can help reconcile one with the world. So, poetry is a pleasure and a solace and a giver of insights and so is friendship and it is the undramatic and individual ties of friendship that bring me back to where I started today in dedicating this talk to to Kumar and to Sidd when the the ties of friendship break there is pain no matter what the cause and if the cause is death well there is no remedy and there is no undoing it becomes a question of coming to terms with it and the more one loves someone, the more that one has got out of their company, the greater the pain, but it can also be said in the long run, the richer the memory, the greater the gratitude that the bond existed at all. Of course, as we grow older, our dead friends begin to un- outnumber our living friends, and one has to reconcile oneself to this as part of the human condition. still, still. They are there. They are there somewhere, in some sense, to be thought of and to be communed with. And the same, of course, could be said of poets, our friends from the past, who have given us so much, and many, well, most of whom, of course, were long dead, long dead even before we ourselves were born. I'll take a few questions. Um, unfortunately, I understand that there are people in another room with which there's a video link and I really do apologize on the grounds of inequality and chance to you who can see me but can't sort of ask me anything. Um, and I'll try to be democratic at least within the confines of this room in terms of geography. So There, 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 there are roving mics, is that right? Yeah. Does that mean you have to come to the front to ask a question? No. Could you stand up if you want to ask a question? And if not, I'll just point randomly to someone. (laughs) (laughs) It's only fair, after all, I've been speaking for a a while. Oh, there is a question there.
1: Thank you, Vikram. Uh, Thanks for exploring different uh, forms of friendship and commenting beautifully on that. One thing I have always thought about
3: that before having friendships with the external people, we also have to focus on friendship with the self. But especially in the literature, um, like description of friendship with the self has always been looked down as a reflection of narcissistic tendencies Mm. and self-obsession. Have you found any instances in the in, under any poetic tradition, yes. that people have actually, the poets have actually explored this in detail. It's Thank an interesting you. thought. I, I, I,
2: I, um, I do agree that you know an obsession with oneself uh, can lead to uh, accusations, and I think justifiable accusations of egotism or self obsession, or as you said, uh, narcissism. Um, and uh, but I think that the idea of of writing a poem to one's own soul or to oneself, there have been cases of that, for instance, a wonderful poem by Leopardi to himself, a very dark poem, of course, but that can be seen as a meditation almost on the way the world is. Where I I think I was using, when I talked about being a friend of yourself and this kind of psychobabble, what I really meant was that you can. You have to be reasonably tolerant to yourself and that was a, one of the lessons I learned from Kummer, who praised her own cooking. But I do think that um, it's very difficult to be one aspect of friendship to oneself is missing which is the other. You know, you don't get that response, that response, that riposte which is such a pleasure of friendship. Even with people who are dead, if you converse or commune with them you get a different take on them knowing their personality. But with yourself, you kind of You know yourself all too little, and you know yourself all too well, and so I think it's difficult to that extent to to be a friend in the sense that I was interpreting friendship. Yes. Sorry, there's there's several people standing. Why, the lady in the pink pink shirt? Sure.
1: I think I want to ask a question that a lot of the young guys and girls here want to ask. Do you think there can be true friendship between girls and guys without the
2: physical attraction and, and love and everything that goes with it? Or do you think that's a bunch of nonsense
0: that guys tell girls just to get dates? Well,
2: in my role, not just as poet and novelist, but as agony uncle. First, let me ask you a question. Do you mean straight guys? <laughs> well, personally, personally, I feel it's possible regardless. I think it's more difficult for someone who feels a sexual attraction for someone else to 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 have only a friendship. But it is certainly possible. And it can develop into something quite wonderful or maybe it's just a ploy to sort of get to the first base so to speak. <laughs> Whatever it is, I do think it is possible. And I think it depends upon the caliber and the generosity and the forbearance and the charm and all the other qualities of the persons concerned. And I think you should not be too sceptical about it, because that really does make it very difficult. Because the more you profess, the less unself conscious you are. So if it's refer, if you're referring to a particular thing, then I would say give the guy a chance. <laughs> Someone from the from, from the middle, ah, yes, uh, a gentleman uh, in 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 grey. Actually, a uh, green person then grey, so that's fine. Oh, sorry, it doesn't matter, but I'll take you both. <laughs> Or simultaneously, if you <laughs> feel that something contrapuntal should...
3: Um, the, the relationship between Mann and Feroz is...
2: Um, Could you speak uh, a bit clearer? I can, yeah. the,
3: the friendship between Man and Feroz is particularly affecting. And um, uh, my reading of it is that uh, it was
2: more than the uh, Platonic. Friends of mine disagree with it. I was wondering what your intentions were with that particular relationship with that friendship well you know this uh, it, it was a little more than platonic but how much more than platonic is difficult to say and in fact eventually they they uh, it's over a woman that they sort of the, the the tragedy occurs in a sense between them but uh, not to give too much of a story away, because I really feel that that's, that, that does' no, t- no service to someone who begins a, a 1400 page book to give the plot <laughs> but um, I think I mean again, you know with your characters, you can't always speak for them or say what's in their hearts and minds, but my reading of it is rather similar to yours. I think there was something uh, more than that and, uh, and a tenderness and, and a kind of. Such sexual attraction, whatever it was, but but I don't hold it as as the dominant dominant uh, uh, element in their friendship. So so that's that's my reading of it. But again, uh, I'm I'm the author, and (laughs) the author, the authority, the authority of the author, you know, stops when they write the end. So that's that's all I can say about it, and. Mr. Gray, I think yours will have to be the last... uh, uh, Sorry, is anyone else actually standing up? I feel sorry for uh, other uh, questioners. Anyone who wants to ask questions should stand up now. Fine, and I'll take those questions. Yes, anyone who stands up? Another kind of friendship, and the friendship between a philosopher and the poet. Now, of course, this evening we had a a philosopher introducing a poet. But what, what is the common ground between the poet and a philosopher? Is there a commonality? Is there a common ground between the philosopher and a poet? Because after all, the poet is a creature of of mood and of, of ephemeral, while the philosopher
0: searches for more durable truth, truths. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I think there is. I think there is. Quite often, in a poems end with a with a with some sort of um, conclusion, which could almost be considered philosophical and there, there is a commonality both help us try to help us understand the world and come to terms with the world but um, I would if time were not so short have asked the philosopher to come up and explain uh, whether he thinks that uh, there is a, a commonality between it but it is a, such a vast subject that all I would say is yes I think there is but there are clear differences as well um, in that very often the philosopher is expected to be logical in his approach and to convince us through logic and reasoning. Whereas a poet very often convinces us through mood, through association, through jumps of thought. And that of course is not permissible for the philosopher because that would be in a sense a a hiatus in reasoning. So to that extent I see a differentiation and to the extent that I see that both help us reconcile ourselves and help us understand the world, I see a commonality.
0: In um, Dante's Divine Comedy, there's uh, the thread of love that kind of goes throughout and in, in fact love appears a as... A bit louder, of, please. I'm sorry. In, uh, in Dante's Divine Comedy, the idea of love is a force that sort of goes throughout. It binds the book together and it is conceived as a sort of power that binds the universe. It's full of friendships. Dante gets led by, his, by, by Virgil and he meets these people that have long since departed, so there is this joy of finding people again. And that love between people appears very much as a sort of earthly incarnation of a divine love that binds yes. the world. Have you found that sort of thought in other poetic traditions, that the love between friends is the sort of love that binds and creates a world?
2: I'd have to think. Um Well, there's uh, um, in, in, in uh, the Sufik and the Bhakti tradition or uh, um, someone addressing God says father, father, Mother, Helper, Lord and Friend. Um, now obviously that's the creator of the world who's being addressed under this multiplicity of guises. And uh, I think probably the closest to that, that I know of, really is in the uh, sort of in Hindu and Sufic traditions, or the Hindu tradition intermediated by the Sufic tradition. And incidentally, if I'm allowed to, actually, I I would like to say something, quite apart from being a philosopher, um, uh, uh, the man who introduced me um, has written, I'd say, the best book on Hinduism that I know, maybe I shouldn't say he's written it, his grandfather, a great Sanskritic scholar, a Kriti, Kriti, Kriti Mohan Sen, wrote a book on Hinduism, which I think is still available in, in Penguin, certainly in Penguin India, and Amartya, uh, honed it, shaped it, rewrote it, uh, and in this you see quite a lot, not just of the idea of Hinduism that is now being promulgated uh, by Hindu nationalist parties and so on but a Hinduism that is very open to traditions that come from outside itself, from Islam, from Sufism in Islam particularly. So, sort of in answer to your question, I would say that, um, that I do see uh, something like other traditions touching upon the Dante-esque view of things, but of course with the obvious differences that continents, differences and centuries create. That's rather a good point to end on, if no one feels unjustly... Oh, sorry, I, finally, I do see you. I recognise you, and that really will be the last okay. question. So, it's on the, related to the theme you're on. So. Fine. I think we're in, de- we're in some danger of being extruded from the hall, but th- thank you for, for proposing the last question.
3: No. Um, this is more to do with self-search. Um, friendship has a lot to do with attraction. We get attracted to people and friendship gives us what we don't have, we can't find in ourselves. But at the same time, there is a thought that um, even when you've searched, you haven't met anyone as mad as the mind, even our own mind. Do you ever experience moments when you say, I don't want any friends, I don't want any books, I don't want any music, I just want myself with my mind? Your thoughts on this? (laughs)
2: Uh, I think I'll have to answer that with uh, what uh, very often uh, politicians fob off (laughs) their interlocutors, which is uh, no comment.
0: Well, this has been a fantastic evening, Vikram. Thank you very much. It's a both magical and totally enjoyable. It's extraordinary to think, Vikram, converting a large audience into a gathering of friends. And it's quite difficult to part with the friends except for the Chinese poetry that you already know has prepared us for the tradition, that that is a great moment. It has to come, unfortunately, because you lose the... The, uh, the, this hall, but uh, I can't adequately thank you Wickham, for an absolutely superb lecture and, um, and thank you all for coming. I would also like to thank Chris Elvin in particular as the Chair of the, of the Evercolonial Memorial Trust for doing all the hard work to make all this possible, but it's, it's really very good that all of you could come and take them. Many, many, many thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.